Thanks, Scott, and thanks for uh, coming out this evening as we finish our series on 2 Timothy. We may not be finishing it well, but we will be finishing it. And the subject tonight is finishing well as Paul looked at his life, his own life, which was drawing to a close. So let's read our passage tonight from 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you're looking at the Black Pew Bibles, it's page 996. Chapter 4 and verse 6. And while you're finding it, Paige, can I say again to the ladies, thanks very much for those two pieces and for the, the clarity and the heart with which you sang them. So verse 6 of chapter 4 of Second Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. As we've seen in this letter, Paul has, has viewed his life as a race, but not as a standalone race, but as part of a relay race. He has, he has run the first part of that race. He is now passing the baton, not so much to Timothy, but he's urging Timothy to pass the baton on to the next generation. And as Paul uh, closes his letter, he first of all reviews his life. And he reviews the principles uh, which really enable all of us to review our own lives. And we could maybe sum up his view of his own life as saying that his mission 
is complete. In a few months, he will face execution and be with the Lord. And in this last section of the letter, we see what it is like for a Christian to finish well in the Christian race. And we'll see some examples of people who definitely did not finish well. You may say, well, I'm young. It doesn't matter to me now. I'll wait until I come to that age before I worry about how I finish. But the problem is, if you haven't lived your, right, your life right for the Lord, it's too late at the end to do anything about it. If you realize that you haven't been living your life the way that the Lord would want, then now is the time to start living right for the Lord so that when you come to face your own death, you can say, I have finished the course, that you have finished well. So, actually, it's, it's when you're young that you need to learn these principles. Those of us who are older, as we face our death, it's nearly too late to do a lot about how we have lived. So can I encourage you, particularly if you're younger, younger to middle-aged, leave that undefined, but as long as you have time to look at your life, to evaluate it as we'll see in this passage, it will be evaluated. And in the light of that, to modify how we live if necessary. So let's look first of all at how Paul faces his imminent death. He never mentions the word death. He talks about his departure. And he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you may not know what he means by that. But whenever someone wanted to bring an offering to the Lord, something big, perhaps like a, a lamb or even a, a young bull, as well as offering uh, the, the animal, they would have poured out just a small, what seemed like a small drink offering, sometimes called a libation. But it may not have been very expensive, it may not have been very dramatic, but it was just like a final touch that went along with the big offering. What Paul is saying is, all my life's service is like an offering, a burnt offering for the Lord. But even my dying, it's not going to be something that I mourn. It's going to be the last thing I do for the Lord. And I want to do it well. And he says, in the last moments almost of his life, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So he saw his death, his dying, as something that he was going to do for the Lord. It wasn't going to be a disaster, but it was going to be a last statement that he would make to the Lord to say, this is how much I value you, how much I want to give, not only live my life for you, but I want to give even my dying as a last offering, as a last statement as to how much I love you. There's nothing glorious about dying. Even if it's of old age, it almost seems somehow humiliating. Paul's death was going to be humiliating for him. He knew that. But yet he was going to say to the Lord, no matter even if this is humiliating in the eyes of this world, if there's no glory in other people's minds, 
I know for you that you will accept this as a last offering, and it will be a sweet-smelling savor. It will mean so much to God to see someone who offers even their inglorious death to the Lord as an offering. Most of us do not look forward to old age and to dying of old age. It just somehow doesn't seem glorious. But in the Lord's eyes, if we commit even, uh, even in our dementia, as we, if we sense that coming, to say to the Lord, Lord, I am going to go through this as an offering for you. The Lord will accept that as a sweet-smelling savor, as an offering that brings joy to heaven itself. That's Paul's first reference to it. Secondly, he says, the time of my departure is near. Now, if you see a sign called departures, what do you think of? Well, you probably think of an airport. You probably think of the hassle and the inconvenience and annoyance of going through security, particularly Belfast International Airport. But after you've gone through that, and it is unpleasant, and you come in and you see all those who are ready to depart, you tend not to see a lot of people crying at having to leave Belfast. You see people who are full of joy and hope for where they are going to. Now, Paul didn't have airports, but many a time he got on a ship. And this term, departure, is a nautical term for some for getting onto a boat to go somewhere. And in Paul's mind, the departure was a time of joy. Not a time of weeping about where you're leaving, but a, a time of hope because of where you're going to. And so that's how Paul thinks of what we would call his dying. It's a departure to somewhere exciting, not a time of mourning for the life that he's leaving behind, but going to somewhere really good, somewhere we'll, we'll uh, be able to enjoy things that he couldn't enjoy here, and a whole new world. And it's as though he says, my flight has been called. I'm at the departure gate. And it's, it's, this letter is almost like the last message that you, you're able to send before you have to uh, turn your phone on to flight mode. And so Paul says, the time of my departure, and he says that with a joy, with an excitement, as he thinks of the, the new world that he is going to. And then he reviews his life and his service for the Lord. And as he looks back, particularly on the later days of his life, he could call it mission accomplished. And he gives three pictures. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, three different pictures. One like a soldier, one like an athlete, and then the idea of caring and protecting for the faith. I wonder, does that ring any bells with you? You remember when he was urging Timothy to get back into uh, really active Christian service again. He says, I want you to endure hardship. And here are three pictures I want you to think about. About a soldier, the Christian life as a soldier, 
The Christian life as an athlete running a race and the Christian life as a hard-working farmer tending either animals or tending crops. And so Paul applies those same three pictures to his own life and to his own service. He says, I have fought the good fight. Now, there are many Christians who are involved in many fights, but those are not good fights. Sometimes Christians fight bad fights. They mistake their friends for their enemies. And so many of the fights that some Christians fight are not the good fight. But Paul fought the good fight, the fight to spread the word of God, the fight against the forces of darkness that would keep people away from the truth. And Paul committed his life to that battle, to bringing God's word, explaining it to people who might be inclined to run away from it, who might be inclined to reject it, who live in a world that might deny that God's worth is, words is absolute truth, truth. That is a good fight to fight. And Paul says, I have fought that good fight. What was his motivation? Well, in his original call to Timothy to fight like a soldier, he says, a good soldier wants to please his commanding officer and he doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. What, how was Paul's life lived in that regard? Well, he, his commanding officer was Christ. And in everything he did, he wanted to please Christ rather than the various churches. He didn't go uh, to a church to, make a, 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 to get praise, to get a good reputation, a pat on the back, and even a gift. He says, I want to please my commanding officer. And also when it comes to getting involved in civilian affairs, the danger for the soldiers, as we read when some of them were repenting and came to John the Baptist, is that they used their power to extract money from people. They misused the power and the influence that they had as soldiers. Christians should never misuse any influence that they have. They should just serve the Lord, not seek to use their position for themselves to enhance their own lifestyle or to exercise power and to be regarded as famous or powerful figures. So Paul saw his life as a soldier in keeping with uh, what he had charged Timothy to live his life by. Then he says, I have finished the race. Now, he doesn't just say, I have crossed the line, I have handed the baton over to Timothy, I have completed my bit of it, now I can rest. But what he was doing, he says, now there is laid up for me a crown which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give. He has completed the first lap of the Christian relay race. There have been many laps since then. But Paul knew at the end of his lap that he had won a medal. The race hadn't been complete, but he knew that, there was, that he was on the winning side, if you like. Even though there's been so much time in front of him, even so much more difficulties, he knew that the race in Christ's hands was won and that he was going to be one of many who would have a medal. So the crown that he talks about was the sort of crown that was awarded at the Olympic Games. Now we would just say it's a, a medal. So Paul was waiting for the medal ceremony. 
But when he was telling Timothy to run like an athlete, he does say <clears throat> that the prize is only awarded to people who keep the rules. Okay, Sometimes you may have seen, uh, even in some uh, of the Olympics, someone crosses the line first and they think we've won, they celebrate. <clears throat> but then, after a while, the judges look at things and they reevaluate the result and discover perhaps that one of the athletes had crossed over into another lane or had obstructed one of the opponents, and so they broke the rules and they're disqualified, and they don't get a medal. And so Paul says, to run the Christian race, yes, to compete, but to compete within the Christian rules. And sadly, there are some Christians who compete all right, but they don't compete and keep the Christian rules. Some Christian leaders can be jealous of others. That may shock you that such a thing might be possible, but it's all too possible. Some can be more concerned about their own reputation, their position as being one of the foremost leaders in the Christian church, and they rubbish other Christians, they spread false tales about them, and they seek to damage the reputation of others who, who might, they feel, uh, leapfrog um, in the eyes of other Christians. So Christians have to be careful that we keep to the rules. We should not seek our own position, but just seek to win the race. If every Christian got the same medal when we meet the Lord, there would be no point in considering how we run the race. Those of us who are Christians, who have been saved, whose sins have been forgiven, we will all be in heaven. That's guaranteed. But the reward and the, the recognition and the honor and indeed the job that we are given uh, for the rest of eternity will reflect how we have run our race here. If we have taken shortcuts, if we have run it for ourselves, if we have put our selfishness and our own jealousies and ambition in front of others, then while we will still be in heaven, there will not be a medal for us. We will still have run the race, still have completed it, but not be awarded a medal. So it does matter how we run this race. And we need to ask ourselves, do I simply want to get to heaven? and sort of collapse over the line uh, at the last moment and just make it and no more? Or do we want to finish well in the eyes of heaven, in the eyes of all those witnesses, those who have made it before us, and the eyes of heaven itself? Do we want to finish well? If so, we need to keep within the rules of, that the New Testament lays. And lastly, he says, I have kept the faith. I do wish he had said I had dug the good field or something that was more obviously the work of a farmer just to complete the three pictures. But the idea of keeping things is what a farmer does. Abel was the first farmer, and it says that he kept sheep. He looked after them, he protected them. And in the same way, Paul says, I have protected the faith against all attacks, both from inside the church and outside the church. I have kept it from corruption, from being corrupted, corrupted. I have protected the truth of the gospel, defended the truth of scripture as being reliable, 
And so he says, I have kept the faith. So that's one way, uh, one picture of how Paul describes how he is finishing well. But he goes on then to talk about something else. Even though he has finished the course, he says, I haven't finished working. I haven't retired. He he says, send for Mark, this is in verse 11, for he is useful in my ministry. You might be tempted to say, Paul, just a minute, I thought you had finished. I thought you had finished the course. I thought you had retired. Have you still got another ministry? Well, what might that ministry be? He says just after that in verse 13, he says to Timothy, when you come, bring also the books and especially the parchments. What might those be? In fact, he also says, there's only one person with me. He says, only Luke is with me, but bring Mark. Now, if I asked you about Mark, Luke, books, and parchments, what would you be thinking about? What would those parchments most likely be? I don't think they'll be the Old Testament. Paul would have known the Old Testament by heart. What I think those parchments were, the letters and books that he had written before, that he knew were inspired scripture. Because when you think of Paul in prison then, when Mark arrived and Luke was with him, there you had three authors who together were responsible for nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. Apart from Matthew and John, everything up to and including Philemon, and then from then on, if you look at your New Testament, everything was written by other people. As far as we know, well, apart from Hebrews, whose author we don't know, but we've got Peter, James, and John, and Jude. And their books would have been added at the end of Paul's writings. So what I think Paul's ministry here that he's talking about is the putting together of the New Testament canon, as we call it. The New Testament writers knew they were writing Scripture. That's why John sometimes says, I have other things to say to you, but I don't want to put it in writing, because he didn't want it to be regarded as inspired Scripture. What he put in writing was were the words of God himself. Peter refers to Paul's letters and writings as Scripture, a really bold statement to say that the writings of Paul were on the same level as the Old Testament Scriptures. The Christian church had the full New Testament before the end of the first century. Now, there were some false writings circulating, even in Paul's name, and he refers to those in 2 Thessalonians. He says, if you get a letter, even if it says it's from me, but if what it says is against what I've taught, don't listen to it. Reject it as false. The Christian church was very careful to reject anything that did not conform to the known writings of Paul and the other apostles. And there was no one better than Paul at this time to define what the authentic New Testament books were going to be. And so that was a second mark of someone who finishes well. They still are working right to the very end if their health permits them. And third mark of someone who finishes well is uh, what he, he said earlier. He talks, it's about someone who lives for the future, lives for the world to come. 
because he says, the crown or the medal that's going to be awarded to me is going to be awarded to everyone who longs for Christ's appearing, who is living for the future when Christ returns. Firstly, when he returns for the church, and secondly, when he comes to this earth with the church to rule on earth. Throughout 2 Timothy, Paul has referred to that day, that future day. It's a future day when justice will be done, when evil will be put down. And there are some who don't really believe too much in the future, who don't live for the future. They don't believe too much in the world to come, and their focus is almost solely on what happens in this life. And we'll see that in a few moments. But Paul lived his life in the knowledge that the real important world is yet to come. That's why he was prepared to put up with so much hardship. I mean, why does an athlete forego uh, steak and chips? Why do they forego the sorts of enjoyment and pleasure that other people have? And they put up with that for years. It's because they have their eyes on the future. They have their eyes on the medal ceremony that they hope to be part of. And so Paul's uh, motivation was very much directed on the future when Christ would come and evaluate and reward people's lives. He looked at the lives of other people too in that light. He looked at the life of Timothy in that regard. He looked at the life of Onesiphorus that we met in chapter 1. And he thought about how Onesiphorus had been loyal to Paul, had found him in Rome. And he said, may the Lord have mercy on him on that day. So every Christian, Paul looked at their life, not at how nice it was, how good it was now, but how is it going to count on that day when Christ returns, when Christ evaluates our lives? There are other people who finish, were finishing well that we don't have time to get into. Mark, for example, he mentions Mark. Mark started badly, at least in Paul's eyes, but he finished well. Mark is an example of someone who maybe got off on the wrong footing, but he got over it. He didn't go through the rest of his life with uh, being tarred with that brush of having turned back, finding Christian service too hard, not being able to put up with the hardship. He got over that. Sometimes preachers don't get over it whenever they're talking about Mark. But Mark finished well. We have the book that he wrote, perhaps in consultation with Paul, but Mark finished well. Luke, Luke was a professional doctor. He could have had a very comfortable career, been very wealthy. But we read about him here, sitting in a prison in a dungeon with Paul. Paul was in a, a dark prison, uh, a most uncomfortable place, and Luke was there with him. Luke wasn't a prisoner, but he was Paul's assistant. He had given up a career, given up a, a, a very... Uh, comfortable life because he also had caught the vision that Paul had. He was living for the world to come. And Timothy himself, as a result of this letter, responded and once again started to live for that day. So there were some people who finished well, and there are some people, sadly, who did not finish well. The first person that he mentions is Demas. 
Now, he says demons went to Thessalonica. Now, there was a big church, a strong church at Thessalonica. You may say that's good. But having loved this present age, and the word, word used for world is like the word aeon, uh, that we get the word aeon from. It's this present age. So, it wasn't that uh, Demas had lived, had decided to live for this present world that he was, Paul wasn't saying, look, he's just too interested in football. That's all he's interested in. Or that he's, he's given up Christian service, he's gone to, back to university to get another degree to become a, an engineer or something like that. Paul wasn't saying that that was the sort of thing that uh, Demas loved. This age, is, the present age, is referring to God's prophetic timetable. This age that we live in is called the church age. And part of, many parts of God's plans are still future. But some people prefer just to ignore the future, to ignore prophecy, and to live their lives for the here and now. Now, we've already come across this, because in chapter 2, Paul mentions two people and others who said that the resurrection has already happened. Now, the resurrection, when we receive new bodies, the New, the new Testament and the Old Testament, teach that that will come at Christ's return. But there were those who said, well, resurrection is a wonderful concept, but let's perhaps spiritualize it, they said. They said it's already happened. And that left people with no hope of an, a, a physical experience in heaven. The conclusion of that is, oh, well, heaven is, we're floating around as spirits. But the New Testament and the Old Testament says that eternity will be lived in bodies, even better bodies than we have now. It's not some nebulous concept, but that's the trouble with getting prophecy wrong. So what did Demas gone in for? Well, we get another clue when we look at where he had gone, Thessalonica. And if you know your New Testament, you know that Paul wrote two letters to that same church. And in both those letters, the big thing that is in his mind is prophecy, and in particular, Christ's return. The first letter, he is talking about how Christ will return, and we will be caught up to be with the Lord forever. That's, the first letter seems to be speaking of Christ's return for the church, what we call the rapture. But the second letter is talking, seems to be talking about Christ's return and what must happen before that happens, Christ's return to rule on earth, to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Now, you may think these are mere technical details, but the trouble is that the, what we believe about Christ's rule on earth and God's kingdom on earth affects very much how we live here and now, because there are those who think that Christ's kingdom or God's kingdom is now, that it is our job to set up and to establish God's kingdom on earth. If I were to use words like premillennialist and amillennialist, uh, it may confuse some of you, but if you, if you are what is called a premillennialist, what that means, like, like most of us, I think, in this church, we believe that Christ is going to come, take us out of this world. There is then going to be a terrible time when Antichrist will have control of what happens on earth. Then Christ will come and show how this world should be governed 
by a human being, by Christ himself and with us. But there are those who say, well, those prophecies of Christ ruling on earth, that applies now, particularly those of a Reformed persuasion. And many fine Christians would hold that view. And you say, well, why does it really matter? Well, if you take it seriously, and if you are led by the idea that we should be setting up God's kingdom on earth now, well, then you may be very interested in having political influence. John Calvin in Geneva tried to set up and establish in Geneva the kingdom of God on earth. And it resulted in him having some of his, at least one of his opponents burned at the stake. That's how he, he was driven to controlling society on earth. Cannot be done. Oliver Cromwell had the same view of prophecy and tried to establish God's kingdom on earth to the extent that he had the king of England beheaded and tried to rule the country as he thought like the way God would rule it and turned it almost into a hell on earth. That's what happens when even Christians try to rule this world the way they think Christ would rule it. And Paul says in his letter to uh, the Thessalonians, he says, if you get some letter saying that the, um, the day of the Lord has already begun, don't believe it. It's not from me. That day is still to come. But Demas seems to have been attracted to that doctrine. And Thessalonica seems to have become the center of this new view of prophecy. So it wasn't that he became a backslider. He may well have moved to a very highly paid position as pastor or bishop in one of those churches. But he was no longer living for the age to come. He was living here and now. That's what he liked. He wanted position and honor in this age. He was not prepared to wait. Another example, just as we finish, of someone who was going to finish badly was Alexander the coppersmith. He may have been a believer, seems to have been in the church, but he caused Paul endless problems. And Paul says an interesting thing. He says, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. He doesn't say, Father, forgive him. He didn't know what he was doing. He says, the Lord will repay him for the harm that he has done. But he contrasts that with the believers in Rome when he says, at my first defense, everybody deserted me. May it not be held against them. Now, putting those two together is interesting. Paul could understand that weak Christians who are afraid of persecution might run away, might keep a low profile. Paul says, I was disappointed, but I can understand that and may the Lord not hold that against them. But Alexander, who perhaps allowed his personal ambition, his jealousy of Paul to cause him to oppose what Paul preached, he says, the Lord will repay him. Having our lives evaluated by the Lord is going to be serious. There will be things that the Lord understands, mistakes that we've made, our weaknesses, our fears. The Lord can understand those and is a merciful judge. But those who put personal ambition and jealousy and envy into to such an extent that they end up opposing the message of God, the Lord will have stern things to say to people like that. So as we finish, can I just 
remind you what I said at the start, that while we're still here, we have time to do something to make sure that we finish well. And I pray that all of us will do just that.